In this episode, the Changing Character of War program welcomes Dr. Kenneth Payne, a senior lecturer in the School for Security Studies at King's College London. His talk explores the evolutionary basis of strategic behavior, from chimpanzees to computers, teasing out the connections between liberal warfare and human evolution. Um, so the colour coding here is three parts of the book. It comes in three parts. The first part is all about uh, evolution, or focuses in on evolution, uh, and that's my thesis there. The second part is a bit about culture, which I'm going to gloss over in just three or four slides. And then the last part is probably the bit that um, that might be of most interest to you is the bit about artificial intelligence and the ways in which artificial intelligence will shape strategy. Uh, and the overall thesis of the book, in a nutshell, is that there have been... And everybody likes to be um, kind of reductive about revolutions uh, in warfare. Uh, I think of the Tofflers, for example, who posited three revolutions in human history, um, the agricultural revolution, the information age... Sorry, the Industrial Revolution and the Information Age Revolution. I've, I've won better the Tofflers by going for two revolutions. A, a cognitive revolution early in human history that, um, I argue, set up the basis uh, for some underlying and enduring principles of strategy, in the sense that most of us would understand strategy. Uh, and then uh, an artificial intelligence revolution that challenges the evolved so uh, cognitive psychology of, uh, that has been uh, a long-standing part of our human history. So two revolutions, the, uh, the uh, evolution of uh, a cognitive package to do with language uh, and, um, and theory of mind, and then latterly uh, a revolution in artificial intelligence, which is just getting underway. So part one, then, a bit about um, uh, evolved psychology. My thesis is that there is a uh, dynamic relationship between strategy and evolution. That is to say that the need to think strategically was a strong factor in shaping our human evolution uh, and also the way in which we evolved um, imposed some constraints on how we did strategy. Um, hopefully, I won't need to say too much about uh, what strategy is, but uh, in a nutshell, for those of you uh, that might not be uh, familiar with the term, I'm talking here primarily about military strategy, the use of organised social violence in pursuit of some political goal. My thesis is that some, uh, and I know Dom Johnson, it's not my thesis, it's not even Don's, but he's done um, some tremendous work on it. The, the general thesis is that uh, group size has an important effect on winning and losing in combat. And the need to uh, cooperate together uh, in progressively larger human groups has been one of the fundamental driving forces uh, shaping human evolution. I got started uh, on this project reading a book that I commend to you all since um, from the late 70s, I think or early 80s, Franz de Waal's uh, Chimpanzee Politics. If you haven't seen that, um, grab a copy of that. It's a highly entertaining account uh, of uh, life and death in the chimpanzee colon colony in Arnhem uh, and the games, inverted commas, that the chimpanzees played in order to get ahead uh, and assume a, a dominant position within the hierarchy of that colony. And Duval, at the end of the book, asks the question, the interesting question, do chimpanzees think strategically? And he answers that, yes, they do think strategically, but, and I think this is a slight oxymoron, they do so instinctively. There's not, he, he doesn't necessarily suppose a particularly sophisticated degree of self-reflection and reflection about the minds of others on the parts of chimpanzees. He says much of their strategic behaviour uh, is innate to them, it's instinctively acquired. And I think 
Um, not that I want to disagree with one of the most eminent primatologists in the world, but I think he does something of a disservice to chimpanzees. And I think the view on uh, chimpanzee cognition and theory of mind uh, has moved on uh, since the late 70s. So on the one hand, he's doing a disservice to chimpanzees because they are capable of thinking about the in intentions of others, not, as, not to the same degree that we are, but they are to a certain degree. And on the other hand, he does them a disservice because... Uh, um, I think there's a, the supposition that we as humans think in rational and calculating terms about strategy is unfair. We do a lot of uh, um, unconscious, instinctive, heuristic type thinking uh, about strategy, uh, just as the chimpanzees do. So, Deval set me going, and the question was, do animals fight wars? And if they do, do they fight wars in a strategic sense? Do they uh, make use of violence in an instrumental and purposive way? Uh, and my answer uh, was that whilst ants fight um, pretty totalitarian wars to the entire destruction of other uh, ant colonies and other ant species, that they do so on a fairly automatic uh, situationalist basis. They're responding in an evolved fashion to instinctive clues from the environment about how they ought to behave. Chimpanzees, on the other hand, certainly fight wars, come on to that in a second, uh, and then they do so with a little bit more of what we might call strategic thought, a little bit more uh, conscious reflection on what they're doing. Uh, and uh, so that was my starting point. I won't worry too much about the middle part of the book. The middle part of the book is a dilemma common to anybody looking for general patterns in strategic behaviour. It's you've got the whole gamut of human history. What can you say about strategic behaviour that unites strategy across all those different varieties and cultural circumstances. Uh, that's a problem Clausewitz re uh, wrestled with, of course, is the tension between historicism, something that's particular to the moment, and theory, the ability to say something general uh, across all particular areas or multiple particular areas. Uh, the second tension there, the tension between historicism, the local, the particular, uh, and history with a capital H, the idea that history is driving forward towards some particular purpose. Uh, that, that's, the, that's the tension I wrestle with in the middle part of the book, the bit about culture that I'm not going to spend too much time thinking, thinking about here today. And then lastly, the last part of the book, Can Artificial Intelligence Do Strategy? I'll save that for the end. Um, here to kick us off, um, we come to chimpanzees and their ability to think strategically. This is a paper from 2014 uh, in which the chimpanzees demonstrated an ability um, that might have appealed to a social scientist from the middle of the 20th century uh, to win a game of strategy. This is a, the, the game they're playing here is a little bit like paper, scissor, rock. You have to guess what your adversary, sat back to back so they can't see, the chimpanzee here is playing against the chimpanzee here. Sat back to back so they can't see what the adversary is choosing. Uh, one of them is tasked with matching the shapes and, the, uh, and if he guesses, the sh if he matches the shapes that the other chimp throws, he wins. The other is tasked with mismatching the shapes that the chimp throws. So he knows, uh, he's got to think about what the other chimp is going to throw and then produce a mismatch. So you've got a strategic game, two-player strategic game, in which they've got to try and guess uh, what the other person's going to do and behave accordingly. Chimpanzees outperform humans uh, at this game, um, which if you were a, a scholar of uh, the standard social science model, um, uh, of the rational actor with expected utility payoffs, that would be a puzzle. Why are the chimpanzees so good at it? and why the humans less good at it. And if you change the payoffs, or if you change whether one's a, a match or a mismatch and don't tell them, um, very quickly the chimpanzees change tack and start behaving uh, according to how uh, the change 
suggest that they should on a mathematical basis. Um, they come very close to the optimal mathematical solution. The humans are hopeless at it comparatively. The question is why and what does that mean? Uh, and the answer for me um, is not that the chimpanzees are, are better strategists, it's that they're pursuing a different strategic logic. Um, the chimpanzees are responding more instinctively um, to the payoffs. The humans are trying to second guess what the adversary is doing. Um, humans are making their strategy using theory of mind. They're trying to play the I know that you know that I know that you know game. And the chimpanzees aren't playing that game, they just want the suite that they get for winning the game. Uh, and it's the overcomplication that we put into it, trying to read what the intention of others are, that produces in this narrow two-player game a suboptimal outcome. <coughs> so chimpanzees, more rational actors than humans are in that game. Chimpanzees, we know, um, that, that because they're evolutionarily close to us, we parted company from them some six million years ago, um, they're a useful comparator in terms of thinking about strategy. And in answer to Duval's uh, question, you know, do chimpanzees fight wars? Well, when he wrote that in 79, I think it was, the Gombe Stream War had just ended, and I'm not sure whether, whether Goodall had actually published about it, but the dominant view at the time uh, in anthropology and actually in primatology as well was still that you know, chimpanzees were fairly peaceful, fun-loving kind of characters. Uh, since when that view has changed uh, almost 180 degrees uh, and the survey there it shouldn't say Ragham it should say Rangham of course Richard Rangham famous primatologist at Harvard um, it turns out that um, chimpanzee life is extremely violent uh, uh, both intra-group when you're struggling for dominance as devils chimpanzees were at Arnhem and also between groups in terms of these chimpanzee wars uh, and the uh, the uh, paper by Rangham there compiles all the available evidence that around in 2006 uh, about how many wars were fought and what the levels of casualties uh, were in those wars and it turns out that chimpanzee life uh, inside the group is much much more violent than Detroit in the 1970s uh, and that some um, the levels of war were uh, between chimpanzee groups <coughs> allowing for small sampling size was quite likely to be on a par with hunter-gatherer communities and we'll see what that was in a moment here are some chimpanzees behaving you might think strategically perhaps in response to uh, uh, innate subconscious uh, inclinations uh, they, they're conducting a chimpanzee patrol here and they patrol into the territory of neighboring chimpanzees uh, their dominant tactics when it comes to to waging a war like the Gombe Stream War uh, is the raid uh, and ambush they typically attack with 10 to 1 force ratios uh, and so if they can't out heavily outnumber their adversary they'll stage a silent retreat back away until such time as they do Rangham's theory is that this behaviour which contrasts markedly with that of bonobos who don't tend to fight wars spend a lot of time having a good time um, uh, Rangham's theory is that the distribution of food which forced chimpanzees to forage in an isolated fashion made them particularly vulnerable to predation in this way by their fellow chimpanzees because they had to fissure into small groups to go foraging for food they could very quickly be outnumbered uh, and defeated by other chimpanzees um, the question is is that strategic behaviour or not uh, on the one hand the chimpanzees uh, are capable of waging a sustained war against another group of chimpanzees in that Gombe Stream War they annihilated 
the other group of chimpanzees down to every, every last chimpanzee. I, I think there are a couple of females left over that were absorbed back into the original population. Um, and they waited over a period of years. Uh, it's, you might say, well, that's not necessarily strategic behaviour. You know, they're following an evolved inclination to conduct these patrols and to stage these ambushes, and I think you, you'd probably be right about that. For me, uh, the big difference that makes our behaviour more strategic in the sense that we're familiar with is our capacity for this theory of mind, for intuiting what other people want and communicating on the basis of that in order to derive an effective strategy. So, I start with chimpanzee wars and I say, yes, on the one hand, they can do instinctive strategy, but there's something different about humans. And what's different about humans uh, is our ability uh, to communicate uh, and to plan for an imagined future. Um, and uh, uh, the, the basic theory that I elaborate in part one is that there is enough violence in the hunter-gatherer world in which we evolved for almost all of our human history. There is a sufficiently high level of violence, like in that chimpanzee world, uh, to force us to become effective cooperators. We have to cooperate, otherwise we go out of business. That's essentially uh, the theory. Um, so those of you that might know um, Robin Dunbar's work here may have heard of Dunbar's uh, number. Has anybody heard of Dunbar's number? Yeah. Hand up at the back. I hope you're not Robin Dunbar. I've never met Robin Dunbar. So, um, so um, Dunbar's number is that the size of your neocortex correlates very effectively with the size of social group uh, in which you live. So the larger your neocortex, the theory goes, uh, the greater the ability you have to track the key essentials of life in a social group. And those key essentials are essentially who's up, who's down, and who's shagging who. Those are the things that you want to be able to, uh, to, uh, to understand. Uh, and if you, uh, if you correlate chimpanzee neocortex size with chimpanzee social group, gorilla cortex size with gorilla social group, you can extend that line outwards to humans and you come up with what's called Dunbar's number. Dunbar's number for humans is 150. That's the size of hunter-gatherer community uh, in which we spent uh, a, a lot of our early human evolution. It's a very rough rule of thumb because actually the size that you hang out with on a day-to-day -day basis would be nearer 50 people. That would be your kinship band, people who you primarily be related to. And you've come together in this gathering of 150 for an overnight camp, perhaps for reasons of security. Dunbar's number is, is one aspect of a theory of human evolution called the, the, um, the, the social uh, theory of uh, cognitive evolution, which says a lot of our functions are derived uh, to help us navigate this complex, increasingly cooperative, interdependent world of 50 to 150 people with whom we would spend most of our time. That's the group that we hung out in. Um, now, the second big theory to think about is Frederick Lanchester's mathematical laws of armed conflict dating to 1916. Anybody familiar with those? Yeah, a few of you are familiar with those. So without, um, without uh, stressing the point, point one, this is an abstraction. It's a mathematical abstraction. It's not meant to correlate um, precisely to real-world behaviour. But Manchester's argument was that the uh, benefits that would accrue from being in a larger group would be disproportionate to the size of that group. Um, that's what he called square law. If fighting is structured so that it's a melee, basically all against all, um, then the fighting power of the group, all other things being equal, will increase geometrically relative to the size of the group. The advantages from being in a larger group 
uh, will increase geometrically. <coughs> if fighting is structured so it's one-on-one, -on -one, so imagine a series of duels at dawn, uh, or um, imagine, uh, as I do later in the book, hoplite warfare, where the formations force you to fight one-to-one -one rather than in an overall melee, um, then it still matters to be big, um, but it matters in a linear fashion. So provided fighting is, is disorganised or uh, there is a capacity to concentrate fire, that renowned strategic principle, you concentrate your force where you can, um, then the fighting power increases geometrically. So the question is this, is there enough fighting uh, in hunter-gatherer communities early in human evolution to force the agglomeration of uh, humans together into larger groups? And in larger groups, perforce, they have to fight, you, you have to be in a group with people to whom you're not directly related uh, and uh, you have to find a way of cooperating with strangers. Uh, and the answer um, I make, the claim I make in the book, and I'm not alone in making it, plenty of other people make it as well, is that yes, there was enough fighting in hunter-gatherer times to force people to um, cooperate together. So the result I suggest is that uh, there was sufficient violence early in human history um, to put pressure on humans to start cooperating with people um, uh, with whom they might not know each other and Lanchester's law provides a mathematical formulation of that that is to say um, that the prevalence of war solves what's known as the free riding problem the free riding problem is essentially a problem of loafing uh, if they get enough uh, people together there'll always be some people who slack off and if it's a matter of fighting somebody to the death I personally would be on the side of the slacker offers um, so what is it that's going to uh, make me cooperate, that's going to uh, uh, stop me from slacking off? One answer is that it's the prevalence of war forces uh, cooperation and scrutiny of how people are behaving um, within a particular book. So the problem to be solved, uh, you'll be aware, is the classic problem of the prisoner's dilemma. Um, uh, and um, the uh, payoffs are structured in the prisoner's dilemma such that non-cooperation uh, tends to be the favoured option, even though cooperating would be better for you. The solution to that problem, as Samuel Bowles argues, as Peter Turchin argues, is that there is sufficient violence to force, to weed out the non-cooperators and to force cooperation. And actually you can see echoes of that uh, in a couple of those researches there. So um, the, the basic theory of cooperation in an evolutionary sense is from Robert Trivers. Trivers argues that we cooperate with non-kin on the basis of reciprocal altruism. Uh, that is, if I scratch your back, uh, I do so with the supposition that uh, in years to come, you might scratch my back. So I will behave altruistically to you on the assumption that I'll get some payback later on. That's the basic theory of reciprocal altruism. And that requires you to have a, a, make a pretty good bet about the, the, the probability of being paid back at that future date. Of course, the incentive then is to cheat, to get away with having your back scratched without returning the favour, uh, so to speak. Uh, and Dan Airely and Trivers himself uh, have demonstrated that very ably, uh, Trivers in the, in the, um, the world of animals, Airely in some fascinating experiments on, um, on his students, um, proved that our inclination is, is to cheat uh, and then lie about it. Um, but what Airely proved that's, that's quite uh, interesting is that we lie about it not just to the people we're cheating, we lie about it to ourselves. So we have the capacity to persuade ourselves that we are good, honest cooperators, even while we're cheating. So we can see that the natural inclination is not 
to be a fully cooperative member of society, even though the pressure of war suggests that we should be. Um, but there is, because of that pressure of war, uh, I argue, still some inclination to cooperate. And you can see that when you do uh, real-world experiments uh, with the prisoner's dilemma. In theory, in game theoretical terms, the incentive is to cheat and not to cooperate. Uh, in practice, if you give the prisoner's dilemma to normal people, they tend to cooperate, even where it's a one-shot game, so there's no possibility of playing the same person again. So you can't build a reputation for trust that might shape your behaviour. Whereas a one-shot game with a stranger, we have a tendency to over-cooperate. Uh, and the argument is that that tendency to cooperate has evolved within us as a result, as I say, of this pressure of warfare. And in fact, even if you give the prisoner's dilemma to genuine real-life prisoners who ought to know better, they tend to cooperate more than is suggested by the prisoner's dilemma. So this evolutionary picture then uh, that I take out of the first part combines Trivers' notion of reciprocal altruism, Lanchester's idea that victory goes to the big battalions in a disproportionate sense, uh, and comes up with what I think is the, uh, the, the dominant uh, um, approach to strategy, which is to be strong everywhere. If you're strong everywhere, of course, strategy is very easy. Uh, and the, the strategies of the strong that we've evolved with involve scale, mass, and concentration of force. And, um, and that quote I gave you of Voltaire a moment ago, victory doesn't belong to the big battalions, it belongs to the best shooters. Lanchester would, would disagree with that, and I would suggest the evidence from evolutionary history is against that as well. Victory generally goes to the big battalions. Uh, as, as Stalin said of the, of the Pope, how many divisions has he got? Um, and so there is still that inbuilt uh, supposition that mass pays off in the end. Um, but you also, you know, even if you're strong, you don't want to be a muppet. You also want to combine your strategy of the strong, of being strong everywhere, with some sensible tactics, and that's what the chimpanzees do. They make the, they, in conducting a raid uh, and an ambush rather than a pitched battle against the same number of adversary chimpanzees. What they're doing effectively is building uh, a, a force ratio. Uh, that Lanchester would say is, is dominant, so you create a localised force ratio. So even the strong use raids and ambush. And if you look at Keeley's book, uh, War Before Civilization, that pattern is very strongly evident across uh, ethnographic uh, studies and archaeological studies, that the dominant strategy in warfare is raid and ambush rather than pitched battle. Uh, and if you're on the, on the weak side, that's when strategy gets really interesting because you have to find a way of offsetting these uh, advantages of the crew to the others so you adopt all those sorts of uh, approaches you use surprise, deception and fortification, you use manoeuvre uh, and if you are uh, the borrowers as the Americans called the British Army you come up with the British way of warfare which is to try and be more flexible in judo throwing about it uh, than your adversary um, Max Rosa if you don't know uh, uh, Max Rosa's work uh, you should um, He's a statistician at Oxford, uh, and he's produced extensive databases on all sorts of fascinating stuff, the world, the world in figures, and the general picture is, that if he has a general motif, it's that the world is getting a better place, which is not always how it feels uh, eight days out from an American election. Um, but he has compiled a whole uh, range of statistical information about, uh, it's the most comprehensive uh, list that I've seen, uh, of archaeological evidence for uh, the prevalence of warfare in hunter-gatherer communities and ethnographic studies of warfare uh, in hunter-gatherer communities. 
Uh, and on the right here, you can't make out any of the detail here, but on the right, uh, this is violent deaths per 100,000 in state societies. And down at the bottom here is uh, the world in 2007. So that's, that's, that's the, um, the ship pit that we live in at the moment. Uh, battle deaths, 0.33 deaths per 100,000 um, people for the world in 2007. Uh, whereas if you look at uh, this hunter-gatherer community uh, studied in the 1840s in California, 1,450 deaths per 100,000. So hunter-gatherer communities tend to have, I've picked the most violent there, but they tend to have more violence, more violent deaths uh, than do modern state communities. So was there enough warfare in the course of human history to drive cooperative behaviour and get rid of free riders? Uh, the answer for me is yes, and that's the claim I take out of the first part of the book. And then spend a bit of time thinking through the implications of what that means for human uh, cognition uh, and for the heuristics that we've developed to help us think strategically. I won't go into any of that here. That's part one of the book then, An Evolutionary History of Warfare. Uh, it pays to be big. There was enough violence around to force us to uh, agglomerate uh, in large groups and to force us to learn patterns of cooperative behaviour uh, and shortcuts for thinking about who we could trust and who we shouldn't trust uh, to allow us to think strategically. In part two of the book, uh, I take that forward uh, and see if it holds uh, in the cultural era. Uh, and the answer is um, that it kind of does, uh, but stuff complicates it. For reasons of time, I'm not going to get into it. I use three fairly well-trodden uh, examples. I talk about the Greeks uh, and the hoplites, and I talk about the uh, invention of writing, and in particular the invention of strategic studies as a separate way of thinking reflectively about war. And, and the takeout from that study of the Greeks is that writing provided a first example of artificial intelligence, if you like, a means of offshoring part of our cognition outside of our brain. I won't say any more about that. Uh, example two, Clausewitz uh, and Napoleonic warfare. Again, I'm not going to say too much more about that. Uh, I will say a little bit about nuclear weapons. Um, and um, the takeout from the middle part of the book is that Lanchester's law breaks down uh, in the cultural era um, because fighting power is not just about the number of men that you have at your disposal and their ability to concentrate force. Uh, it's also about technology and the cultural era is about technologies of warfare. Not weapons technologies, but not just weapons technologies. Technology uh, screws Lanchester's abstract thinking about um, uh, the importance of scale when it comes to um, strategy. Uh, and the apotheosis of that, of course, is nuclear weapons, where the Enola Gay can inflict um, as much damage as a thousand plane firebombing raid on Tokyo. Um, so scale, once you have nuclear weapons, becomes less of an issue, although, of course, you need scale in order to develop nuclear weapons in the first place. I said at the beginning I posited two revolutions in military affairs. The one, the cognitive revolution, the, the, flexible, the package to construct groups flexibly in order to deal with violence in the world, and second, artificial intelligence. Uh, and uh, one of the other contenders for a revolution in military affairs that changed everything um, is uh, nuclear weapons. And Robert Jervis, many of you will know, 
said that nuclear weapons were a revolutionary development in warfare. They were the revolutionary development in warfare. Bernard Brody, the, um, the American strategic thinker, on hearing about the destination of the first nuclear bomb, said that he thought it had made everything else he had ever written redundant uh, and, and obsolete. He thought that the entirety of strategic history was redundant and obsolete because nuclear weapons had transformed it so much. Uh, I think he was wrong. He's, well, he was wrong. But I also think that Jervis is wrong in the sense uh, that nuclear weapons are revolutionary. Um, they're an important development in the history of warfare, for sure. But I don't think they're revolutionary. And, and, and the reason is at the bottom there. Strategy, even with nuclear weapons, remains a matter of our evolved human psychology. We're still making decisions about the employment of nuclear weapons using precisely the same cognitive architecture that we evolved with uh, for the 150, 200,000 years of our, of our human evolution. So all those factors in nuclear uh, uh, strategic theory, uh, escalation, the need to demonstrate credibility, miscalculation, the scope for misperception, those are all subject to the same evolved cognitive psychological foibles uh, that we brought with us before. Jervis said that nuclear weapons were revolutionary on the basis that they would transform the balance between denial and punishment. And of course you have uh, a nuclear standoff through mutually assured destruction and the threat of retaliation uh, is how you use the weapon. So it's the threat of using the weapon rather than the actual use of the weapon that delivers you your strategic result. Uh, and what he said is there's no point trying to deny nuclear weapons, you can't defend against them. Instead, your uh, strategic use of nuclear weapons relies entirely on the threat of punishment. I'm not entirely sure that is revolutionary. Firstly, because denial and punishment both featured before the onset of nuclear weapons. You could certainly deny through the construction of fortification or the use of terrain, these sorts of things. And you could also threaten punishment um, through retaliatory attack. You didn't need nuclear weapons to do it. Sure, nuclear weapons gave you an assured uh, um, ability to punish, um, but punishment was certainly a feature of strategy even before the development of nuclear weapons. So I'm not sure on Jervis's account that nuclear weapons are particularly revolutionary. And that's all I'll say about them here. Reasons of time, uh, I wanted to get ahead to the artificial intelligence because I'm aware that that's probably why most of you are here not to hear me rambling on about chimpanzees and warfare. So um, in very uh, quick order, my headline for artificial intelligence is that it is uh, a revolution in military affairs, it is a revolution in strategic affairs, precisely because it challenges the underlying evolved psychological uh, uh, abilities that we've brought to bear to tackle strategic problems since we emerged on the planet, and even before, in our antecedent uh, species. Here are some examples of artificial intelligence from recent months. Uh, let's go with the easy ones first. Anybody know what's going on there? Yeah, John? Uh, Google's AlphaGo yeah. beating the, uh, one of the world's leading Go Yeah, beating Lisa Dole 4-1 in the World Championship. And before that, very quickly, we very quickly adopt hindsight bias uh, with achievements like that and assume, well, of course it beat him. Before that, pretty well every AI expert outside of DeepMind uh, was saying it wouldn't be done, couldn't be done for 20 years because they'd all been trying to do it. Um, Go is a very, for those of you that don't know, is a, an oriental version, oriental board game. It's a very simple, constrained, what an AI developer would call a toy universe. It's not like the complex, messy reality of winning in Vietnam. There are only a certain number of moves that can take place. There's two different varieties of moves that can take place on the Go board. But they can do so with such dazzling combinatorial complexity 
that there are more possible moves mathematically than there are atoms in the universe. Um, so you can't solve a game of Go through brute force calculation, which is why AI developers had said it would be 20 odd years before anybody came close to performing at the level of the world champion, still less beating him. Anyway, um, within DeepMind, they were pretty confident that they'd thrash him, and they duly did. Uh, so that's that one. This one, anybody know that one? There's a remote control helicopter flying upside down, but more significantly than that is Andrew Ng's remote control helicopter flying upside down from 2006. And this is one of the first deep learning nets, for those of you that don't know AI, a deep learning net uh, in rough terms is uh, analogous to the, the connections of neurons in your brain. It's a very loose analogy, but that was the inspiration that started AI researchers off uh, down this sort of uh, um, what's called constructivist, constructionist approach to artificial intelligence. So. His was the first one to figure out how to fly a helicopter from first principles. It encountered the, the universe of the helicopter and it flew and crashed and flew and crashed and flew and crashed on a simulator. Probably couldn't afford the models to have it doing it over and over again. And then eventually it reached that takeoff point and it had mastered helicopter flight to the point at which it could roll a helicopter, which is no mean feat uh, for any helicopter pilots in the room because normally they crash at that point. Um, so not, not only could he roll it, but he could perform some pretty complex um, um, manoeuvres as well. This one down here is from the last couple of weeks. Anybody seen this one? No. Uh, this guy is, uh, is an American Air Force colonel. He retired. He is a, um, a uh, air superiority combat instructor. That was his job. Uh, Dogfighting, Top Gun style. That's what he spent his career doing. Now he works as a consultant for AI companies. And this is him, as they say, having his ass handed to him by um, an artificial intelligence system that's running off a BlackBerry Pi, running on a BlackBerry Pi uh, mobile phone, uh, and he was unable to, to beat it in repeated air-to-air -air combat um, activities. Uh, and that's only in the, in the last couple of weeks. Air-to-air -air combat against um, human adversaries is something that obviously the, the Pentagon has an interest in, has been working on since the 1980s with, with no particular degree of success. It's just a complicated control problem to be able to process all the relevant information in the required amount of time to uh, to defeat a sophisticated human adversary, but it has now been done. Uh, Pentagon, by the way, is still planning to put a man in the cockpit of their next generation uh, long-range bomber, which is um, something that they might think about again. Anybody know what this is? That's an, uh, that's an antenna designed using evolutionary design. Ah. Where they ran the computer system. How did you know that? Nobody's ever known that before, you no. absolute geek. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's exactly what it is. That's very old now. Uh, it's a NASA antenna to go on their satellites, it's a communication antenna, and it was designed using AI, which is why it looks like that wacky shape. It's not the sort of thing that I would sit down and say, design me an antenna. I'd come up with you know, a straight forward thing, I might put one bend in it, but it kind of came out looking like that. And that is the optimal solution that is designed better than a, than, than a human could do it. Um, and, and I think together these things show a, a range of the sort of military relevant activities that AI is involved with already. This is, this is weapons design, right? Um, there are already, you can read the solicitations for them on, on um, the Army, US Army website, solicitations to use AI to design uh, um, bunker penetrating munitions. So AI is all already involved in designing weapon systems. I was on, walking over here with Rob, and um, we were talking about uh, the carriers, the Navy's carriers, 
uh, obviously uh, a favourite project of the, of the Royal Navy. We might also have been talking about the US Air Force manned long-range bomber. Um, those are weapon systems that are designed partly with the efficiency imperative in mind. You know, war has an efficiency imperative. If you don't do it well, you go out of business. But partly also, of course, to reflect the institutional proclivities of the organisations that design them, bureaucratic politics in action. That's only sustainable um, while they're being designed by a human. An AI probably wouldn't design you an aircraft carrier. You might not like what it designed you, um, but it would design you something uh, a bit different from, from what you would come up with. So AI and weapons design. This is analogous to AI in um, strategic situations or operational situa situations with uh, less structure to them uh, um, when it comes to decision making. And this is obviously tactical level uh, activity. So AI across a, a, a range of military salient activities. Uh, and my argument is, contra my good friends who work for DeepMind, who assure me on a regular basis that they are not involved in defense-related research. And indeed, it was one of their criteria for being bought by Google that they would not engage in defense-related activities. Um, a, a little analogous to, to nuclear weapons development and, and the idea of dual-use technologies where you have uh, civil nuclear capabilities capable of being uh, switched over to military ones, but even more so in this case, because AI is entirely about autonomous decision-making in imperfectly understood environments, and that is an inherently uh, military strategic capability, regardless of their desire to keep them separated. So let me, um, let me close this section for reasons of time and get some questions. The way I've tackled AI here, not in the book, is through some dualisms that I think are, are, are particularly relevant considering how AI will affect strategic level decision making. First, the distinction between narrow and general AI. So when Stephen Hawking tells you that the, uh, we've unleashed the demon, or Elon Musk tells you we've unleashed the demon, uh, and AI is coming to take us over, um, he's talking about general AI. That is uh, not just unbounded, flexible AI capable of reaching decisions across uh, a, a range of activities. It's not just a chess computer. It might also decide it wants to do your garden. But it's, it's AI that is capable, that is motivated to some extent intrinsically by itself to do these things. That's what he's frightened about. It's a flexible AI that is motivated to do its own thing. Um, I'm not so much concerned about that for all sorts of reasons. But I think there's plenty to be concerned about when we're still talking about narrow domain-specific AI and the tactical impact of narrow domain-specific AI. So that's one big distinction. When we're talking about narrow AI, we're talking about Lee Sedol being beaten there. When we're talking about general AI, have a look at the DARPA robotics challenge from this year. The robots are still incapable of doing fairly basic stuff like opening doors or climbing over fences without toppling over. Um, and, and I think you know the complexity, the combinatorial explosion in doing some of those things that we take for granted is still beyond what our current level of AI can do. Second duality is between tactical and, and strategic decision making. So flying that helicopter up, upside down or defeating uh, our US colonel in air-to-air -air combat is a tactical level uh, activity. Tactical level military activities still require some generalist knowledge, flexible skills across a range of activities and they're still hard. It's not a chess computer, it's altogether more complex uh, to learn to fly a helicopter. And the last couple of, um, of dualisms before I, I stop talking at you. Uh, one is this question of autonomy and self-directed AI, and this opens uh, a real can of worms. To what extent is artificial intelligence capable of making decisions for itself 
uh, and uh, to what extent is it responding to uh, inputs that you put in uh, ahead of time, ex ante. Uh, and um, in an ideal world, you would like to have the idea of your strategic goal, or even your tactical goal, and you would tell the machine to, to achieve that, and it would go out and achieve it. And that's what the Army Corps Mission Commander does it today. Uh, you tell them what you want to achieve, you tell them your commander's intent, and you leave them to figure out how it is to achieve them. So in an ideal world, you would quite like that to be your relationship with autonomous, autonomous intelligent machines. They are autonomous to the extent that they are carrying out activities that you have told them to do uh, up front. And that's fine, well and good, except that you don't always know what it is that you want them to do up front because you can't anticipate situations that may arise downstream. Uh, it, it's fine, well and good because you may be satisficing, as the term is, Herbert Simon's term is, uh, between... Uh, different goals that you want to achieve that might be intention. Can you specify which goal you want the machine to achieve, which goal is the most important uh, or otherwise? Um, Bostrom's Bayesian paperclip counter uh, is, uh, has anybody read Bostrom's Superintelligence? If you, if you want an intro to the, to, the, um, to the scary Elon Musk, Stephen Hawking side of artificial intelligence, Bostrom's book on superintelligence is a pretty good place to start. And his nightmare scenario is the paperclip counter. The paperclip counter has the best intentions in the world. In fact, it has no intentions. It's not, it's not out to get you. It's, it's just been tasked with counting to 100. It, you want it to count 100 paperclips and tell you when it's done that there are 100 paperclips there. And in, in, in Bostrom's scenario, it conquers the known universe in order to count those paperclips because it can't count them to the degree of certainty that it is happy 100% that there are 100 paperclips there. So, 98, 99, 100, job done. Did I get it right? Just have one more check. One, two, three, four, five, six. And it gets to 98, 99, 100. And, it, and, and it's reasonably short because it's done it twice now. It's just going to have one more check because there's a vanishingly small probability that it counted wrong twice. And it will carry on doing this. Uh, and as a genius uh, artificial intelligence system that has been tasked with this thing and nothing else, it will secure all the resources, Bostrom argues, um, we don't have absurd, absurdium, it will secure all, all the resources in the universe in order to keep counting the paperclips to make sure it's got 100 paperclips. That is an example of the agent principal problem gone disastrously wrong. All you wanted to know is that there are roughly 100 paperclips there. Unless you specify it up front, your very clever artificial intelligence uh, will keep counting. Uh, and, and securing the resources to enable it to keep counting. So the agent principle problem is a key thing. How do you put in enough safeguards to ensure that the machine is going to do exactly what you want uh, and not what it, it thinks you want? Um, and you, you can see the military dimensions of that in autonomous uh, weapon systems. I just asked you to kill this one guy and now you're doing all this sorts of other stuff that I didn't ask you to do. I talk um, uh, in, in the book about consciousness and the possibility of machines becoming conscious, and I won't go into that here. Um, the, last, uh, the last few um, before I finish, um, one is uh, the, the distinction between, that I make between uh, evolved human cognition and artificially intelligent machines doing strategy is probably a false dichotomy. In fact, it's not a false dichotomy. It is not probably. It is a false dichotomy. Um, artificial intelligence and human intelligence uh, are probably not going to be seen as, as, as separate entities for all that long and HCI is um, human computer interface uh, and the extent to which you are using artificially intelligent systems as part of your normal cognition Pokemon's augmented reality is an example of that uh, or um, uh, the use of 
uh, a chip in your brain that's reading your prosthetic arm uh, to tell you what your prosthetic arm is feeling is an example of a sort of mind-computer merge, uh, if you like. Uh, another DARPA project, a quadriplegic woman at, um, at MIT has flown an F-35 through the power of her thoughts. She's flying this, this thing, not a real F-35, there's only about 10 of those in existence. Um, but she's flown it in a simulator. Uh, using the power of her mind. So I think the breakdown between what is evolved human cognition and what is artificially intelligent cognition will probably blend a little bit. So uh, that's another another duality that I talk about. Defence and civilian research, I'm pretty hard over on in the book. It's all defence research. It's all about decision-making uh, in uh, complicated environments. And toy versus real universes. A lot of AI researchers, particularly long-standing AI researchers, are pessimistic about AI uh, and, and I think they are so by inclination because they've been at it a long time and it's a frustrating game uh, and they are by inclination because they want to counter uh, unjustified hyperbole of the sort that Elon Musk was, was talking about but, uh, but I think their, their pessimism is to a certain extent unwarranted you know, um, toy universes can be pretty complicated and AI is doing pretty well in those toy universes um, let me finish for, uh, for reasons of time, if nothing else. Uh, with I then offer, by way of concluding the book, ways in which artificial intelligence is going to change strategy and we'll perhaps tackle that more in questions. Uh, the, sorts of, the sorts of thinking that I go through are that AI changes the balance between offence and defence because it allows rapid concentration of force. AI shifts human tolerance for risk, firstly because you're not losing any of your own people, secondly because your actions are not being driven by your own emotional cognition. Uh, AI makes the man in the loop unsustainable. The current Ministry of Defence position on artificial intelligence and weapons is there will always be a man in the loop, a lawyer making a decision on what machines can and can't kill. Um, that is inherently unsustainable. In a, it's fine when you're tackling the Taliban in Helman province and you can lawyer everything back up to London. It's not fine if you're tackling an autonomous system operated by a high-tech adversary, let's say China, um, because they might not care to have their lawyer in the loop uh, deliberating on, on what their machine can and can't do, in which case your machine will lose. So the man in the loop will be forced out of the loop uh, by dint of the speed of artificial intelligence. AI will change radically the structure of armed forces is another point that I make uh, in the book. And it will strip a, a lot of people out of the armed forces to kick off with, and it will change the sort of people that are employed. So that's my last slide. Um, I started uh, from the point of considering the way in which our evolved human psychology has shaped our strategic behaviour. Uh, and for our entire human history uh, up until fairly recently, and really fairly recently, the Pentagon is now using artificial intelligence systems in Reaper drones to identify and prosecute targets. So fairly, fairly recently. Um, our entire uh, strategic decision-making about the use of violence uh, in the collective good has been taken on the basis of these evolved cognitions that I say started with Lanchester's law and, and our, our proclivity to cooperate. And that is now gradually being replaced with what? Uh, and uh, there I'll leave it and, and um, take any questions that you may have uh, about that. Okay, thank you very much, Steve. That was, uh, <laughs>